Welcome to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, the podcast which brings you the latest in science and practice and challenging mainstream medicine and finding new and exciting ways of having a happier and healthy life. This series is looking specifically at mental health. We've become really concerned about the lack of translation of what science knows into what medicine does. In most societies, including the one I live in, one in five of us will have a serious mental health problem at some stage. The infrastructure, the practice, the gap between treatment and best practice is massive. This podcast series aims to do something about it. Prevention is cure. I'm your host, Professor Grant Schofield. Jimmy Hunt is an interesting character. I've known him for a while and observed his work from being nominated for New Zealand of the Year for his advocacy around mental health to his interesting choices in lifestyle to go and live in other countries, including Mexico. His constant but diligent effort in communicating around the issues of mental health, based both on research and science, but as important, his own lived experience. And I found this interview really interesting. It's really more of a discussion than an interview. We sort of toed and froed quite a bit, especially around his concept that I love of mental fitness, uh, where we've lost our way in mental health and conventional medicine. You're going to love it. So without further ado, enjoy Jimmy Hunt. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight Jimmy, thanks for coming. You are many things. You're an author. You're a public speaker. You describe yourself as a mental health change maker. You've coined the term mental fitness. How did this journey start and where's it going? Hi, Grant. Thanks for having me. Um, well, uh, yeah, I am a few things, um, but they all fall off the back of just who I am, really. I just try and be me. And... Um, I- now, I'll tell you where I'm going before where I've been, because where I'm going is, is I, I have a very simple view of what my job is. My job is to move myself up the mental fitness continuum, raise my vibration, be happier and healthier, whatever that looks like. For me, my job is to improve myself. And then the symptom of that is I go, oh, well, it would be selfish of me not to share what I learned. Um, I better tell people about this because it really helped me. Um, it made me happy. It made me healthier, more empathetic, more loving, kinder, whatever it was. I was like, oh, I should probably, I should probably tell people about that. And so then I, so I happened to do that in a myriad of ways. I come on people's podcasts. I write it down in books. I put it in my social media. Um, and I talk to people in the real world and – 
like it just comes back to the old adage for me, you can't teach what you don't know. And my job is to know myself better so that hopefully other people can know themselves better. Why this space? Well, I think that for me, the greatest results uh, come out of me being happy and healthy. Once I worked on the inside, the outside fell into place. Whereas most people try to work on the outside, hoping magically that the inside will work itself out. And so that's that's what I do. When I work on the internal, when I become happier and healthier, I get more jobs. Yeah. I have better friendships. I have better relationships. Um, things fall into place much easier. And so it's really, although it might seem quite almost esoterical and weird, the less I try for the external stuff, the more the external stuff falls into place. You probably didn't start this way with this this goal of making yourself happier and healthier and translating that and helping other people. You weren't travelling through childhood thinking that, for instance, were you? When, no. when and how did that start? Well... I grew up in a Western world. I grew up in New Zealand, uh, of you know, in a in a place of privilege. I, I guess uh, you know, my family are lovely. They they I never wanted for anything, and I had the same values that so many. I, I wanted to achieve. I wanted things. I originally wanted to be a uh, professional sports person. You probably didn't know that. Uh, I was pretty. What what, what what sport were you thinking well, about? So I play. I played. Um, hockey, tennis, and golf for North Harbour. There you go. And I wanted to be a professional tennis and golfer. Um, and then I realised that being really, really good in New Zealand in those particular sports uh, equates to being fucking useless in the, in the, in the, in the wide world of it. Um, but I, then I wanted to be a successful entrepreneur. I wanted, I wanted to achieve all of these things, have these big businesses. I like... So all of my all of my goals, hopes, and dreams growing up were external. I never once thought about, and this, you know, I mean, I'm forty, and it doesn't seem that old, but I grew up in an era of not talking about mental health. <laughs> we did like, not once at school, not once was depression or anxiety mentioned ever in my upbringing. Not once. So that's twenty, thirty years ago. When I was 10 to 20, not once did I ever hear depression and anxiety. Never, never even, I wouldn't even understand it. And so when I started in my, I guess, mid-20s, when I started to get sadder, it was really baffling to me. Because, because you were I, achieving, you were achievement oriented, you were achieving things on the outside. I was achieving things on the outside, but I was getting sadder on the inside, and I couldn't figure it out. And I didn't have any benchmarks to look at it against. I didn't have any examples to to go. Oh, I'm, I'm like that. Or, and, t- or tools. Or tools. No, I had I had I had nothing. And so, unsurprisingly, it just got worse. Yeah. And worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And um, in on my mental fitness continuum, the bottom quadrant, zero to 20, is 
what I call severe discomfort. And severe discomfort is a place where you can't live for very long. Um, you've either got to move yourself up um, to my next quadrant, which is 20 to 40, which is discomfort, or move yourself out, um, which you know 650 people a year do in New Zealand. And I chose um, out you know, a number of times. And I'm very happy, obviously, that that didn't end up being the case. Um, And so the only other option in that space is to move up. And so I was like, right, like, fuck, whatever I've got to do, I've got to move up. And it wasn't until I met a guy called Dr. John McEwen, who was probably my fifth psychologist and the first decent one. Yep. Um who started actually giving me a couple of tools. Um, and, yo, and I'm talking about simple tools. I'm talking about drinking more water. I'm talking about creative celebrations. I'm talking about um, some simple breathwork stuff. And it was the first time I was like, oh, I have some sort of autonomy over my mental health. And so I started doing enough work to move me out of severe discomfort and then into discomfort. And discomfort is a place where so many people live and they're almost fine with it. Uh, We're very good at putting up with discomfort in our lives and and not actually needing to So you're not having – you're not, as you were saying, oh, you're not li- happy. living more awesomely. Oh, no. No, but, no, no, but, but, no. but you're, not, you're, not having, you're not looking at exiting stage left at any moment. Correct. And discomfort feels absolutely beautiful compared to severe discomfort. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I lived there for quite a while um, thinking that because cause we have, you know, traditionally we've got two things that um, make up, two options, which are you're either, either mentally ill. Yes, or you're mentally well. Yeah. Those are your two options. Yeah. And, and actually it's a continuum, as you say, much more sophisticated <laughs> much more, than that. Much more nuanced to it than yeah, that. Yeah. But but because I'd done enough work to not be mentally ill anymore, I was like, well, then this is this is my other option. Where I'm at right now is my other option. And I didn't you know, didn't realize that I could keep going. And then it was only uh, – so I had a uh, – fuck, it seems so long ago now, but 2013, I released a best-selling book. I built the biggest water slide in the entire world. I opened TEDx Auckland in front of 2,500 people. I fronted a national ad campaign for the biggest company in the country. I was a finalist for New Zealand Innovator of the Year for my slide design and a finalist for New Zealander of the Year for my work in mental health. And I had a shit year. I was sad that year. Because your, your thoughts and feelings were still dominating your life in a way that meant yep. you weren't thriving. Yep. So Even though by, by external calculations, anyone would have to best think, year this, ever. This, guy's, this guy's on fire. Yep. So the book didn't sell enough copies. The war slide didn't raise enough money. The TED Talk didn't save enough lives. The, the product sucked and died, and I didn't win either of those awards. So I had a shit year. Interesting. And that was when I was like, oh, there's still a problem here. Yeah. And it was interesting because what I was doing was I was trying to achieve all of those things uh, for extrinsic reasons. 
I I was doing them. Yeah, some of them were for altruistic reasons, um, but they were really also just for my ego. Uh, yeah, like building. I got a Guinness World Record. That's kind of cool. Yeah. It was um, a cool water slide, to be fair. Yeah, it was a very cool <laughs> water slide, um, and and it was it was a hell of a lot of fun. And 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 so I got this recognition. I got to help all these people. I got this award. I got all of these things. But what I didn't use those things for was opportunities to change my thoughts, my feelings, and my behaviors. Because just because my external situation had changed didn't mean I was thinking differently, didn't mean I was responding to my stimulus differently, um, and my emotions were, were still the same as they had always been, which wasn't healthy. And that year was the really the, the epiphany moment for me to move from the binary model of mentally ill, mentally well, through to the continuum model of mental fitness. And I was like, oh, there's a journey I need to take here. And so since that day, my job is to go to the gym every day in my head move myself up the continuum and then report back what I've what I've learned. And that's a journey that's continuous and daily forever. That's why I call it mental fitness because we understand physical fitness in that we see it all the time. You've got the um, competitive swimmers out front, right? Mm. So let's say you're a competitive swimmer, you make the Olympics. You go to the Olympics, you win a gold medal. You're this perfectly triangle-shaped person, ripped to hell. You are cardiovascular fit out the wazoo. You win the gold medal. You're the pinnacle of the world. Therefore, you are now fit forever. Yeah, you've you've got all sorts of components of fitness there in yeah. the traditional sense. You've got you've got the flexibility. You've yeah. got the skill. Yeah. But now, but now, but now, but now you're fit forever, and you don't have to swim anymore. No. No, of course not. Yeah. Like we 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 have our physical fitness for our entire lives, and yes, we can get ourselves to a pinnacle state, but we still have to do work to maintain it, and we can still get fitter. And this is exactly the same with with your mental fitness. Is that we we don't we're talking about India before you don't go to Dharamshala in India to the Dalai Lama's temple and look at the monks there and then go to their graduation at twenty one where they've all gone from four, the age of four to twenty one meditated every day graduated and now they don't have to meditate anymore. Doesn't work like that. We chip away at our fitness every day for our entire lives. And so the sooner we start looking at our mental fitness journeys like our physical fitness journeys as lifelong journeys, the sooner we start collecting the tools yeah, to that's, move that's, forward. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? So I sort of paraphrase what you're saying there with physical fitness. And an example, I once at a fundraising dinner sat next to uh, an Olympic champion swimmer, a guy called Daniel Loder, who won t- <laughs> two, two gold medals at the 1996 Olympics. Yeah. Sorry, Not, Daniel, but you're the perfect example. You're perfect example. So um, Daniel wasn't in great shape. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Daniel. And, and, in fact, and in fact, I still yeah. swim a little bit. I reckon I was a chance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he had been very physically fit, and, and if you don't pay attention 
I'm not saying people obviously aren't going to stay in their Olympic swimming shape, but yeah. but we do understand that if you go and bed rest for uh, or, or do no fitness work, then you're yeah. going to go. It's not only you're not going to maintain, mm. you're actually going backwards. Yep, and that's an important thing because the the body, um, without some of that stress uh, to adapt to, um, looks to save resources. And uh, and saving resources, it becomes uh, less able and less resilient, yeah, physically than it was. And you, you, your your thesis here, which I I I really embrace, is in uh, mental health and well being. Then that journey is still the same, and you've called it mental fitness to to bring those together. Yeah, because my background is branding, and so. The problem with the term mental health is that um, over the, the, the decades slash centuries, um, it went from we had two states, physical health and mental health, yeah. through to putting physical health. Like, I mean, look where we're sitting. We're sitting in um, like AUT Millennium, the high performance unit for physical fitness, right? Yes. We don't have these units for mental fitness. No, 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 we certainly don't. No, we, we, we don't put the priorities into mental fitness as we do physical fitness. The people with all of the followers on Instagram uh, have got the perfect bodies and, you know, this is how, how you get fit. Um, well, well, so just to put that in context, though, I think this is where you're going. Like what we're sitting in here at this high-performance place and what could be considered in other terms a, a physical health unit. But if you use the term mental health unit, what would people think? Well, that's where we're, yeah, that's for mental illness. It's where we send the crazies. Yeah, yeah, and so and so this is the thing. Like twice on the national news in the last year, I have heard the anchor use the term that a person is suffering from mental health, not suffering from a mental illness, right. not, not not suffering from it. They're suffering from mental health, and so my point is that the term mental health has been degraded. Because when I say Mental Health Awareness Week, what do you think? Yeah, it's about mental, mental illness. You think about mental illnesses. So we've degraded that term so much. And in branding world, you have two choices. You can either try and reclaim that brand. And so you can put billions of dollars into marketing, trying to reclaim the, the usage and the terminology around that. Or you can rebrand. Right. So you think the battle's lost. We can't reclaim. I think the battle's lost. Can't reclaim it. But I think even more than that, it's smarter to rebrand to mental fitness because what we can do as a brand is steal all of the brand attributes from physical fitness yeah. because these are inherent in our society and we already understand them. Yeah, so we understand, we understand training. We understand yep. the idea of some stress but an adaptation to that stress. Yep. We understand about regression without... Yep. Training, we understand that this is a positive thing that allows us to live and be better. Yep. And we understand that you need coaches. Yes. That you can do cross training. Yes. That, you know, there's yeah. there's so many of the analogies that we can that we can pull in that makes. There's that often work. Uh, some people prefer solo sports and some people prefer team sports or there's a combination of both and all of yeah. those things yeah. work perfectly yeah. for mental fitness. And so that's because the the problem with mental health and mental illness is the derision of the general populace in that if I'm like, do you want to go to a mental health lecture? Fuck no. Yeah. No, I don't. 
Or just even asking the question, like I can ask a room full of people, hands up if you have mental health. And only half of them will put their hands up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> because people don't want to associate with a mental health problem or a mm, mental mm, illness. Mm. Whereas if I asked a room full of your athletes out there, would you like to be physically fitter? Yeah, everyone. 100% of the people put their hands up. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And so I want that same response by asking the question, who, hands up, who wants to be mentally fitter? Yeah. And part of the way we need to get that across is advertising the benefits of being mentally fitter. Because we know the benefits of being physically fitter. Like for these athletes out here, it's about winning medals. It's about getting funding. It's about, um, you know, this, as well as all the health benefits of the general populace. Yeah. But, but for us, for you and me, well, unless you're more of an athlete than I am. Yeah, no, the, I'm not. Um, which is, you know, there's not, not much for me. But the, uh, you know, we understand that we're keeping fit for our longevity. Correct. Uh, for function yep. as we age, uh, to be able to do things with people that we love. Yep, yep. Yeah. All of those things. Yeah. And we can sell that easily and people understand that, but when we talk about mental health, it's like this dichotomy still exists. Um, Correct. Do you go to your doctor and they go, well, you're doing all right, Jimmy, but but here's some tools to to be help you be even more awesome. Well, that's just it. I want you to be mentally fitter so you're more effective and you're efficient in your job, yeah. that you are more likely to get a promotion and a pay rise. Yeah. I want you to be mentally fitter so that you're better in your relationships you less less divorce, um, less arguments, more sex. You know, I want you to be mentally fitter so you're a better parent. Mm. I want you to be mentally fitter so you're a better friend. Yeah. And like these benefits are tangible yeah. and life changing. We just have to be able to sell them better so that people opt in to trying to become mentally fitter. And so, so when you talk about this continuum, you've talked about. And I think you've done this in your latest book, Inside Out, mm. about the, the external versus the internal skills. Yeah, well, so I'm far less scientific than you. I'm very much uh, uh, lived experience. But what I've split – because so with mental fitness, I talk about mental fitness tools, right? Mm. So just like physical fitness, you've got a weight room, a pool, you know, like running. You've got well, we're looking at running track outside the window right now. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got all of these tools, right? And so with mental fitness, I want you to have those tools too. I want you to collect as many tools as possible. And so I split them up. And this is not a neat split because a lot of them cross over and everything. But I split them basically into external and internal and I surmise that basically the external ones hold your position on the continuum and the internal ones help move you up. And both are important, right? And so some of the external ones might be um, your job and uh, having a sense of purpose in your job and enjoying your job. Might be your community. Maybe you belong to a church. Might be your family. Um, or it you, might you, be you volunteer in the community. Yeah, you volunteer in the community. Yeah. It might be um, running, yeah. walking, swimming. Um, yeah. You know, all of these things. Um, I'll give you an example. My friend, she very successful woman. Yeah. Um, lovely family, wonderful business, like all of the all of the markers of great. 
She tore her Achilles tendon. Ouch. Yeah, shit injury. Yeah. And she, on my continuum, she was about. She was in the fourth quadrant. She was. Um, uh, she was unhappy. And then it took her a couple of months to slide all the way down to severe discomfort. Mm. And you're like, whoa, how did that happen? You know, she had one thing. All, no, she had she had all you know, she had she had a good life. Yeah. And right. how she how she gone down? One thing happened to her. Yeah. So how did that happen? Well, the truth is she thought she had a whole bunch of mental fitness tools. She thought she had running, the gym. Walking with her friends, indoor netball. <laughs> they were all a very similar tool, mm. and they all got taken away by one injury. Mm. And so, when all of her tools got taken away, she slid down. They were all her, you know, her ex- that, that was external her, that tools. That was her tool bag. Yeah, that was her. That was her toolbox, and it's like, cool. They were they were taken away. And so, one, we need to be collating a. You know, a toolbox full of external tools that hold us where we are and collecting as many of those as possible. And that, that, that's great. And a lot of us already do that without even knowing. You know, we've, we've got the things we like, the things that, that keep us happy and, uh, and that. But then we're talking about the moving up the continuum tools. And that's when we've got to stop looking at the extrinsic, start looking at the intrinsic. And that's anything from my, my number one, the, the only tool I think should be in everybody's toolbox is meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we're talking about the scientific benefits. We can see every piece of science over the last 20 years is phenomenal on it and people still don't do it. Um, but you know, meditation as an internal tool for self-awareness, um, mindfulness, rewiring your brain with neuroplasticity, all of those things is, is phenomenal that's an internal tool that can help move you up. Anything that gains you self-awareness is a tool that can help move you up. Breath work, cold exposure, things that put us in um, small amounts of discomfort to be able to use the mental process to get us out of that Mm. um, discomfort and help give us clarity in our thoughts, our emotions, and most importantly, our reactions to stimulus. Because that's what we're really looking to change, right? Mm -hmm. Is that when something happens, I would like to react a different way than I have previously reacted. And, you know, I mean, I think think about a classic one, like think before you speak. Mm. You know, and you're like, it just doesn't work like that. It just just blurted blurted out. That's my common default setting. Well, we can train that out those responses we can train them to be different yeah. but and we do that just like you would train a physical fitness response by by literally going to the gym every day and responding differently and being aware of it and then rewiring our brain through that process so so you had three things there i just want to pick yep. into to all of those because they're sort of interrelated but first of all um as the branding guy this meditation is a word that you hear and you might initially sort of associate that with uh, religion, uh, particularly Eastern religions that you find a little bit maybe mystical or actually a little bit scary, yeah, um, or just off-putting altogether. Well, the Catholic Church called it the called it the tool of the devil, right? So, well, there you go. Yeah, uh, and 
like I've I've have been not a big practicer of meditation until the last two years. Yep. When I've started to do it, and I've done a breath-based one is one that's worked well for me. And, and just to clarify, there are lots of different types of meditation, mm. and they're all great. Yeah, but fundamentally, life-changing is a powerful tool. Yeah. For example, I'm prone to immediately jumping to emotional conclusions and then saying them. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if yeah. that's a common thing yeah. for everyone, but it yeah. can get you in that's quite the a thing, of, That's the thing before you speak Yeah, thing that your mum tells you. Yeah, yeah, well, your grandmother used to go, well, we'll get onto the breath of my grandmother. She used to say, like, darling, before you say anything, take three deep breaths. Yeah. Um, but what I've done recently is combine all three of those things into um, I... I Go in the cold water. I breathe uh, and do some meditation. Yeah, uh, and it's become a ritual that has been an amazing thing for me. Yeah, um, and you're talking about someone who's deeply skeptical of sort of yeah um, that sort of thing. So yeah. well, the, the, yeah, and that's just it. Like one of the um, I, again from a branding background, I think one of the the most brilliant rebrands in the history of the world was rebranding meditation to mindfulness. Yeah. And it took it from this Eastern religious thing through to a Western tool for well-being. And, you know, <laughs> meditation is not complicated. Now, doesn't mean it's not hard because <laughs> it can be very hard, but it's not complicated. And I said there's, very, there's, there's lots of different um there's lots of different types of meditation, and you can do you can do calm or headspace, wherever, and use yeah. the guided meditations for relaxation. But where the, it becomes a powerful internal tool is when you use it for self awareness. Mm. Um, and guided meditations aren't good for self awareness. Um, Breath based meditations are. Um, but the biggest misconception I see in the Western world around meditation is that you're using it to clear your mind. Mm. And you're using it to, you know, not think when that's just not humanly possible. Mm. Um, where I think the greatest possible benefit uh, of meditation is, is the understanding that you are not your thoughts. You are the observer of your thoughts. Yeah, let's just dive into that. That's a really powerful oh, it's the one. biggest mindfuck you can ever well, think. Well, I've only just got into that right. for, for trying for a year and then the, in the previous year. Yep. That's the thing. So, so I think for, from my point of view, and it's kind of if I'm doing this right, is that I'll go breath-based, I'll concentrate on the, the breath coming in and out of, in my case, my nose, the sensations of my uh, breath going in and out. Uh, and I try and stay centred on that. And then what happens is um, things will pop into my head. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I've now become aware of, and I think that the exercise is not to not have the thoughts. Those are inevitable. That's Correct. That's a human. Yep. But it's to observe those thoughts and let them pass. So that, yep. so that the actual exercise of the meditation is to become the observer of the thought. Yes. So that's the practice. Yeah. Right. And so uh, let's, let's take, you know, depression, for example. And I sort of I use the analogy, it's kind of like putting the blinkers on. So when you, when you end up, 
deepen your depression, like you can only see what's directly in front of you, mm. right? It is it is a very, very, very narrow worldview and you're in fight, flight, freeze constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that means that survival is your priority and that's just right what's in front of you. And in that state, you are your thoughts. Mm. Everything that's coming into your mind, that's like, that's what I am. And, you know, from a scientific view, you know, we're like the brain is what controls everything. You know, our brain is who we are and everything. But then from a from another scientist, you know, so, okay, so the question is, if you're not your thoughts, you're the observer of your thoughts, then what are you? Mm. Like, who, who are you? Mm. And that's the rabbit hole you go down, and scientists will call that consciousness. Mm. Um, religions might call that the soul. Mm. Um, and whatever you want to call it, you are the observer of your thoughts. And what that means is that when you are inside your thoughts and you are your thoughts, it's a dangerous place to be. Because especially when I was down the bottom, like, you know, your thoughts tell you your horrible things. And then your thoughts tell you you should kill yourself. Yeah, and, and, so, and if you're going to take those literally yeah. and, and do that, then yeah. you actually can end up in a, in a whole world of trouble. Oh, 100%. And that's how we do end up in trouble. And so the practice of being able to be the observer, like I was doing some automatic writing the other day and I just wrote down, and I don't know if this is, if this is profound or I stole it, but I wrote it down, um, which was um, the space between your thoughts and your actions is wisdom. Mm. And... In order to gain that space, you have to have the ability to observe the thought. Yeah. Because so many of us, thoughts, actions, that's it. Yeah. Create that space, observe that thought, and what you then get to do is have the opportunity to be able to uh, acknowledge it, accept it, or let it pass. But the only way that you can possibly get, well, no. So, like, if, in terms of like practice, in in a sports world, you you practice a technique consciously until it becomes subconscious, mm. right, and automatic. You know, the swimmers right out there are practicing. You know, very intricate movements of their arms being coached by a coach and they do that on film, they do it consciously, the coach points it out and then you change it and then when they go and race, it's just automatic. Yeah, and they're, this, they're, fl- they're flowing along. They're not going, put your hand here. and Yeah, they're not thinking anything about the mechanics of their stroke. Yeah. They've already done that practice. Yeah. And so that's what meditation is. Meditation is the practice that allows us to get our subconscious into a place where it responds better than it did in your previous instances. Right, and so one quite, I think, a more effective form of therapy is this acceptance commitment therapy, and that mm. what, what's happening there is you're going, look, I'm a human, I'm going to be having all sorts of thoughts, some positive, some <laughs> yep. negative. Yep. Um, uh, that's a normal thing, but my commitment here is to observe those yep. and act in a way that allows me to f- flourish. 
Yeah. And I, I think that's much of what you're saying, right? So yeah. you can imagine, let's go back to a sports analogy for a moment. You think about a tennis player, the crowd's yelling all sorts of stuff at you. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, um, uh, you know, I don't know what you're thinking, Grant Schofield, you're playing uh, yeah. Jimmy Hunt, he's actually pretty good at tennis. You can't hit the ball, don't hit the ball, you're useless. I mean, you know, if, I started, if you started listening to the crowd, yeah. um, good luck with that. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, if you're actually trying and, to and that crowd's in our fucking head. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know? and, and when we get down the rabbit hole of being depressed, yeah, uh, or anxious, it gets louder. It gets louder. It's not only louder; it's it is the head. <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah. your point, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that and that's just it. Because the number one thing we're scared of as modern humans yeah. is sitting quietly with our own thoughts. Yeah, because I can lay out. The phenomenal research in in meditation and how it can absolutely fundamentally change your life. I can I can tell you that in Tim Ferriss's book Tools of Titans, where he interviewed two hundred and fifty of the most successful people on the planet, he said the number one personal takeaway he took from reading that book was that ninety five percent of the people that he interviewed had some sort of daily meditation practice. It's interesting that you say that because that was the um, that was the main thing. That turned me towards uh, my less breath-based meditation yeah. was that fact of Tim Ferriss. Oh, really? And, cool. Yeah, and and the tools of times. Yeah, that, oh. that, that, that's exactly what turned me towards that as a tool. I was like, wow. Well, brilliant. Well, I, we got I, you. I, I strive to be, um, you know, high performing in a way yeah. that I think is going to allow me to flourish and change the world. And when you see uh, a common thread in high performers, yeah, you might are, as well jump uh, on yeah, board. Well, yeah, I don't think it's an accident. Yeah, no, it's, it, and it's and it's not. But what I'm saying is, I can show you the research. I can tell you that fact, and people still won't fucking do it because <laughs> right. it's really confronting for them. Because what it means is that they have to listen to their thoughts. Yeah. Have you? Do you know the um, website Reddit? Yes. Yep. There's a subreddit called Shower Thoughts. Yeah. Do you know what Shower Thoughts are? Just stuff that you're randomly thinking of. Yeah, stuff that, you know, random funny quips, interesting insights, things that you think up in the shower. And there is 24 million subscribers to that subreddit. It gets popularised in videos and quotes and all over the place. And the question I ask is why is that a phenomenon? Why is that a thing? Because it is the only time in a modern human's day where they are not distracting themselves with other people, screens, music, podcasts, They're just TV. feeling sensations. They're sitting there and feeling sensations. They have ambient temperature. Yeah. They have, they have white noise. Yeah. They have no distractions. Yeah. They are basically meditating. Yeah. And whilst they meditate they get to have all of these insights and understandings on themselves and things like that. Yeah, or just random things. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny you say that because I was having a shower this morning and I was having shower thoughts and for some reason I knew that I was um, talking to you this mm. morning, like Jimmy Hunt's popping to my head and then there's, I don't know, some tangential Jimmy Hunt thing with the water slide and yeah. I'm off on my own world and then I'm going, oh. and then it occurs to me that I, my self-talk started, it's like, hang on, you're a 55 year old man standing naked in a shower thinking of Jimmy Hunt. That's weird. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. No, but you're right. Yeah. But the thing is, what happens is, is you, you're in that shower and you're like, oh, I should ask him this. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and you're like, yeah, I'm so glad that I thought of that. Yeah. That's a perfect thing to ask him. Yeah. Like, where did that come from? Yeah. Because if you hadn't had that shower, yeah. And let's just say you were sitting here smelly. Yeah. Um, 
and you'd rushed and had breakfast yeah. and you'd talk to your wife and your kids and you'd yeah. gone for the, the, and you'd done this and done this and then you were here, yeah, the you, would, you would never have had that question because yeah. we, ha- we aren't giving our brain space to process, think, understand and then change. Yeah. And, and so the, one of the reasons um, where I do m- my meditations mostly are in two different environments, which are going to sound slightly weird to people, but um, a really hot bath um, first of all, it, it takes care of a lot of stuff, but I also think there's been. I actually make it quite hot. Yeah. Like so, it's. I think there's other physical benefits from the stress of the heat. Yep. Um, but I find it quite easy to do that and observe thoughts, um, and also uh, I, I go in the cold water. Yep. For the same reason, the sensation of cold on your skin. Yep. Um, and the sort of internal heating that eventually happens because your brown fat upregulates and and you're sort of generating heat from the inside. A very easy places for me to do that, or if I try and just do that, I don't know, sitting on my bed or in an armchair, I, f- I, yeah. f- I find it a it's, more difficult state to get. Of course, it is. Yeah. Of course, it, and so what we want to do is we want to get you to a place yeah. where sitting on your bed is easy, right? Yeah. But but we don't go asking people to meditate for an hour on day one, mm. like so. This is the analogy again: is like right, Grant. Neither you or I are overly uh, physically fit. Mm. Uh, have you ever run a marathon? Well, I have, yes. Yes, right. Yeah. Okay. So um, you decided to run a marathon, yeah. right? And then that weekend you went and ran the marathon. No. <laughs> Fucking of course not. <laughs> no. Of course not. So you had to put all of these things in place to be able to train for the marathon. Yeah. Did you go and train a half marathon on day one? No. No, you ran to the end of the road and back. Yeah. And then we build from there. And this is the same with meditation. Like the number one way to stop someone meditating is to ask them to meditate for too long. Yeah. Because it'll fry them and they'll just like, nah, I'm out of this. And so what we're looking to do, again, is we want this practice, like meditation isn't a a retreat you go to for a week and it turns your life around and saves you. It's a lifelong practice. It's like walking. Yeah. We're going to walk for our health Mm. for the rest of our lives. Yeah. We need to meditate for our health for the rest of our lives. Well, so why don't we not use the word meditate and say we need to get ourselves in a space where we can be the observer of our thoughts? Why is that not a? To- uh, uh, why is it not described? Why are we not more accurate in describing that? Because when I think about it like that, it's more powerful to me. Yeah, no, exactly. As I was saying earlier to you before this, so much of this is a branding problem. Yeah. And um, that's why I think I have my place in here to be able to reframe stuff yep. for people. Yep. Um, and so, so you have you have your your hot and your cold where yep. you where you meditate, yep. um, and that's and that's fine. Um, I have you ever been in a float tank? No, I haven't, and I'd like to do that. Have you, you done that? Yes, yeah. you should do that um, again. Off off camera, we were talking about. Um, uh, psychedelics and yeah. th- it's you know it's there's ways uh, to do that to get close you know yeah. the, it, it, there's comparable yeah. things, but um, w- the reason float tanks are so effective is they are they are what is a sensory deprivation meditation yeah right so you have you've um, taken away sound light sensation and sensation because yeah. you're in five hundred kilograms of uh, magnesium or salt yeah. Um, so, so you're neutral, you're just lying yeah, there. You're, you're neutral buoyancy, but the water temperature is the same as your body temperature, as which is the same as the air temperature. So you have no sensation of whether you're actually in the water, in the air, or in your body. 
Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So, so and, and the point of this is if you take away your five senses, yeah. all you're left with is your thoughts. Yes. There's nothing... There's nothing else left. Yeah. And so that's when you have to process that and go into those meditations. And it's very easy to go into a deep meditation. And so what I prescribe, because float tanks aren't accessible to all, yeah. they're expensive, there are not that many of them around. Yeah. I prescribe a sensory deprivation meditation in your bed. Mm. Noise cancelling headphones mm-hmm. or earmuffs from Bunnings um, and blindfold. And the right amount of um, blankets for whatever your yeah, so pretty uh, neutral. Whatever your um, yeah current air temperature is in your home um, to create a, a neutral temperature um, in in your bed, and that allows you to go deep quickly, mm. and allows you to really have easier, um, clearer meditations. And because so, the thought, the thoughts coming and going are, are, are very easy to observe. Yeah, they're, they're just yeah, it just becomes clearer. Like so, so last night I went to the Ponsonby Food Hall. So and so this is this is your high performance unit. The Ponsonby Food Hall is your high performance practice track. So I've done my sensory deprivation for a long time. I've done breath. I've done the hot. I've done the cold. I've done all of the things. Then you finally graduate to the Ponsonby Food Court. <laughs> Yeah. I'm curious what happens at the Ponsonby Food Court. It is a stimulus fucking overload. Oh, okay, I get it. Like, so there are eight um, restaurants there making yeah. all sorts of different foods. You've got all sorts of different you've smells. smells. You've got noises. Yep. You've got yeah. Like there was wasn't a um, spare table to be had last night. Yeah. There's probably 200 people in there, all having their own conversations, all walking right past you. Hmm. If you can meditate in the Ponsonby Food Hall. You can meditate anywhere. Yeah, right. And so I'm in there. I've finished my dinner. My plates have been cleared. And I'm sitting at a table meditating. And I'm doing it as a stress test for my meditation capabilities. Can I be the observer of my thoughts in that situation? Yeah, right. But you, I'm not telling you to go today to the Ponsonby Food Court and try and close your eyes and meditate there for 20 minutes. Because you won't be able to do it. Because you can't do it. Yeah. Just uh, well, like and, the, and likewise, it's, you, so, it's so, the marathon. But could you do? Yeah. So, so could you go another step further and go? Well, actually, some of this training is you're going to get in psychologically stressful situations where you need to be able to observe your own thoughts and respond in a way that's going to be good for you and everyone else in the world. Yeah. Um, and that's the real stress test. Yes. So, so this is exactly right. So. Um, what we are doing is stress testing ourselves. Yep. And we get in stressful situations all the time with our partners, at our jobs, um, all sorts of things trigger us into a fight, flight, freeze state. And then it's our job to respond in that way. And most of us are not very good at responding. We just blurt things out. We say dumb shit. We get angry, mm. road rage, all of these sorts of things. And so... I, there's nothing I can physically do to tell you how to respond better in a stressful situation. There's nothing I can do. I can give you tools and you won't be able to enact them in the moment. What I need you to do is start small. Yeah. 
I need you to put yourself in cold water. This is why cold water and hot water is great, right? Yeah. What we're doing is putting ourselves into a controlled discomfort and then practicing getting ourselves out of that. So the cold water is a perfect example. You go into the cold water, it shocks you. It puts you in a f- stage of fight or flight. Yeah. You want to get the fuck out as fast as yeah, you can. Yeah, there is, there is no way around that. That Not. is a normal physiological response. Correct. And so what they teach you to do is, well, the first, the normal response in the fight or flight in the cold is to run away. And if your brain says, you know, there's people watching, don't run away. Your body goes into... (gasps) And you might even shriek out. Yeah, you might do that. But the the breathing goes shallow in your chest, through the mouth, in and out. What they teach you to do is close your mouth. (sighs) Breathe in through the nose, out through the nose. Because the body, the body's physiology knows that if you're breathing in and out through your nose, you are in a calm state. 100%. And so what we're doing is just tricking our body's response into going back into calm. Because we know that we have made the choice to get into this water, other people have done it around us, like it's not physically going to harm us. Yes. You know, like we know we know the the logic around it. Our body is just in a primal state. Yeah. And we can change that state through practice. When you're driving and getting and you get road rage cuz someone doesn't indicate, right? There's nothing I can tell you that will stop you responding that way. Mm. But what I can get you to do is practice your responses. Every time you do feel that feeling of rage at something somebody's yeah, to done. Be able to calm the nervous system. Yep. Get to, a space between thought and action. Correct. Do yeah. the breath. Yeah. Space between the thought and action. Perspective and understanding. Maybe that person's wife was just in a car accident and she's in hospital and he's rushing to go and see her. Yeah. You know, we don't know what's we don't know what's going on yeah. in or, other people's and, worlds. Or they just didn't see you. Uh, Maybe they just a dick. But why? But, but, but whatever. What's that yeah. going to? How's that going to help? What's you? that? Buddha says anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Like, okay, say that again. That's a great one. Buddha says anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> yeah. we we hold on to this. Oh, you, and the other person just drives on with their day. Yeah, they might not even. Know, <laughs> they yeah, in the care. in the best case, they didn't even know. See you, know you were there, or that's exactly. the reason they cut you off is they didn't even see you. Let alone exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so what we are, what you know, because if we want to get fit, we need to train. Yeah. And so this is where all of these forms of training in this facet, this internal stuff, starts just getting us fitter. Yeah. And we start responding differently in the future each time we do it. And so just, I mean, back on that analogy, my wife and I decided we we're going to run a half marathon. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's a project. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so it's like about 75 days away now, and so we've been going a couple of weeks. And, yeah. And um, last night I went for a run, and I'm not very fast, and but I've got a GPS timer, and I knew if I went, I ran 10 and a half K, so it's half of the half marathon. Yeah. I wasn't going one step further than that. In fact, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like, like I yeah. was at my maximum. Yeah. You know, I have got zero chance. I, yeah. I was thinking, you know, so if you put me in the half marathon now, would I make it? And the answer is, oh, no, I actually wouldn't physically make no. it. No. 
Um, no. But, I, but I think in 75 days, I hopefully will be capable of making it. So this, and this is why I will continue to use these analogies over yep. and over again, because if you are trying to run a mental fitness marathon right now, and you think that um, in 75 days you won't be able to, then you won't. Yeah. But I can tell you right now, if we chip away for 75 days, you'll run that marathon. Yeah. You will run it. It is. I've seen it before. I'll see it. I'll see it again. You've. But you've. You've got to. You've got to trust the science. Yeah. You've got to trust the anecdotal evidence. You've got to trust the yourself. Trust the process. Yeah. Trust the process of going through it and turning up every day. Yeah. Because that's that's the that's the problem with humans, is that. We think we can teleport up the continuum. Yeah. We think that. So I mean, it's, I guess the analogy is like going to a marathon boot camp this week and training ridiculously hard for your marathon this week, but it's then still sixty-five days away. Yeah. And, and it's like, but it, so, well, it doesn't this, fix, well, fix you the, forever. The, well, there's so many things wrong with that that are analogous to mental health and well-being. That first we're going to get injured. Um, yeah. You get sick of it and you might like it and you'll yep. never do it again. That's the big one. Uh, and, and you're expecting results straight away when, in fact, um, if I go running today, um, then at the end of that run, I'm I'm less able to cope with running than I was at the start. Yeah. Um, and, but it's only after a few days of recovery that I will have improved a little bit. Yeah. Emerson so- said that um, I always give up writing before I hate it. Which is what, what what I took on for my writing is that if you sit down and you try and write for two hours yeah. and you end up at the end just going, fuck, I hate this process, I hate this thing, yeah. then you're far less likely to write tomorrow. Yeah. Whereas if you write for half the time and you write for an hour, yeah. then you're far, far more likely to be able to go back yeah. the following so, so day. So actually, actually writing is a very good example. I love it because it's a sort of halfway between fitness and mental well-being practice. And, and for me, the same thing. I, you know, We've both authored quite a few books and, and you did write. First of all, you build up to it. Second of all, it must have a start and stop time. Mm. You must acknowledge that the process will get there because when you first start writing, no one is very good at writing. No, uh, and and you're hoping for incremental improvements of and, and so for my students, I have them, you know, um, and hopefully some of them are listening to this. Uh, and if you are doing writing or you're, you're having to do it because you're a student or whatnot as well, then that I think your advice here about a start and a stop time, uh, and sort of graduating that and understanding and trusting the process is by far and away the most important thing about writing is there's no magic to writing no um, no one's sort of born with that gift um, and no one's born with a right to be physically fit and yep. no one's born therefore with a right for this mental fitness it's it's something that is that is that is gained you have to earn it yeah yeah and you have to earn it with time and effort yeah and so when the the writing analogy is still a good one so when I wrote my first book I like I I've written three books. I still don't consider myself an author. Mm. Um, like, uh, and this woman came to me from a publishing company and she said, I want you to write your memoir. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I want you to write the story. Yeah. I want you to write about your life and write about the Lilo adventure. And I was like, yeah. uh, 
Like, no. Yeah, right. I turned her down three times yeah. before she finally convinced me to write a book. Yeah. And this was a, a little bit mental? Yeah, it's called a bit mental. A bit yeah. mental, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and not a little bit. No, just a bit mental. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so she ended up convincing me um, by saying, first of all, um, you don't don't think about writing. She said, just um, just write like you speak. Yeah. She's like, you speak wonderfully. Just write it like that. Don't even think about the writing part. I was like, yeah. okay, cool. I can do that. And then she said, because you do speak well publicly, like that is a thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you can speak. So therefore, just write as if you speak. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. And I was like, how long does it have to be? And she's like, sixty-five thousand words. I was like, the most I've ever written on anything is a thousand at school. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like sixty-five thousand words. That's ridiculous. And so I went home and I sat down, and I went, oh, I wonder how many, wonder how many stories I've got. And so I just wrote down all of these ideas of stories, like parts of the yeah. parts of the adventure, and, parts and, and of things the, that you would have talked about. Yeah, in things various. things I would have talked about with my friends or whatever. I think that's a good story. That's a good. I counted them up at the end, and there were sixty three of them. Right. And I was like, I can't write sixty five thousand words. Yeah. But I can write sixty three thousand word stories. Yeah. Because how do you eat an elephant? Yeah, and that's, one bite at a time. And that's, and that's how you did it in the end. Yeah. yeah, I just wrote I wrote sixty three thousand word stories. Yeah. Which people call chapters, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but the and and I did it in chronological order as well yeah. to make it even easier for me. And so, but it's the it's the chipping away over time. Yeah. I don't. Have you read Atomic Habits, James Clear? No, tell me about that. I've got about uh, six books written down so far from talking to you. Exactly. So Atomic Habits is basically the bible on habit change. Yeah, it's millions of copies sold. Bestseller, James Clear, very smart man. Yeah, write that one down yeah. too. But one of the – and you'll love it because the, the opening chapter uses uh, a cycling example. You're a cycler. Yeah. Um, and one of the fundamental principles in his book is also one of the fundamental principles in fitness, physical as well as mental, and that is the aggregation of marginal gains. And so to put it simply, to be 1% better every day. And so if you're 1% better every day, you don't just add that up. So after a year, you're not 3.65 times better. It's exponential. Mm. It's gains on gains on gains. Mm. So it's 1.01 to the power of 365 is 37.78. You are 38 times better at the end of the year by being 1% better every day. Mm. And the story originally came, this is me paraphrasing something off the top of my head, but the story originally came from the English cycling team. A guy came in. Uh, as the new coach, he had um, English cycling team never won a medal at the Olympics. They weren't winning any Tour de France uh, legs or tours or anything from any of their riders. And he came in with this a- idea of the aggregation of marginal gains of being 1% better every day. And so he started looking at 1% on anything. Yeah, and I've read all about this. So this yeah. is your whole Bradley Wiggins era, that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a while back. Mm. But, but um, yeah, so he started going, the standard stuff, how do we make the bikes 1% lighter? But first of all, he wasn't saying, how do we make it 20% lighter? Mm. Because you can't just go make a, um, a performance bike 20% lighter. Yeah. Like It's already been optimised yeah. massively 1%. Yeah. 
How do you make it one? How do you make um, them one percent fitter? How do you make them recover one percent more? But then he started asking interesting questions like, how do we get them to sleep one percent better? And so one of the things he did was brought in sleep scientists who um, tested every single rider for combinations of mattress, pillow, and temperature. And people were slightly different. Yeah. And so on tour at the Olympics, they took their own mattresses, their own pillows, and made their own temperature air conditioning in yeah. the rooms. Like, he started looking at this 1%, and it was within, like, one or two or three years, they, st- they won, at the next Olympics, they won something like 60% of all gold medals available. Yeah, uh, no, for the English cycling, cyclists. particularly on the track, was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they started winning Tour de France stages and then titles, you know, yeah. like they had these phenomenal things, which was just the aggregation of marginal gains. Yeah. He wasn't trying to teleport them from the worst to the best. Yeah. He was trying to make them one be- 1% better today. So I, I think it's even, in my experience, I coach a few elite athletes, yeah. I, I think the aggregation is even smaller than that. Oh, yeah. And so... Point one percent. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or or less. Yeah. And and so, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. One guy, coach, he, he this year he broke the course record at Ironman New Zealand. Um, he's just won the seventy point three at Ironman Cairns. He broke the course record by nine minutes. Won the race by sixteen and a half. But the journey has been. There is no decisive point in that journey. No. Like it's been accumulation after accumulation after accumulation of very, very small gains. Yep. I'm always astonished at how small a thing we're looking at. Yep. Um, and, and every one of them you go, oh, I'm not sure if that's worth it. Or, yeah, you know. so I, I was at the very bottom of the continuum. I'd yeah. say I was at a two, yeah. right? Very close to fucking being out of here. Yeah. And I'd say now I'm in the top quadrant, which I call content, yeah. which is between 80 and 100. Yeah. I'm going to say that I'm 85, yeah. right? And my goal is to get all the as far up as I can. Yeah. I cannot tell you any singular thing that has moved me from two to 85. Yeah. I can't tell you any major thing that's really got me there. Because there's a series of tools. Because it's all of them in all different times. So like, I say meditation is the biggest thing. Yeah. I've had big bouts of no meditation yeah. and then gone back to it yeah. and then done this and then yeah. done this, you know. Um, so there's no, there's no single thing. So, so let's explore that a bit more because, because in that toolbox, right, um, just to continue that yep. that physical fitness analogy, like there's all sorts of different things you can get to fit. You can push some weights at the gym. You can go running. You can go cycling. You can go swimming. You can go outdoors, indoors. You yep. can do virtual this. You can uh, yep. you could uh, go on a team sport, but 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 you know horses for courses. Some people, yeah. I, I personally don't like going to the gym. I hate um, it. Um, I'll never go. No, it's sort of to me, it's like being on a bus, no eye contact, and yep. you know, like it's just weird. But people like some people like that. Great, and more power to them. So let's let's think about some of those other tools in the toolbox. But that, sometimes your swimmers yeah. will should go cross train kayaking. Yeah, you know, and you and you get these random gains from somewhere that you didn't really understand, yeah, or rope climbing. Or yeah, something. or rope climbing, or what, whatever. Yeah. Like yeah. you know, just just to because when you when you shock the body. In a different way, yeah. it starts gaining in different ways. Yeah, right. And so, you know, 
yeah, we can have our mental fitness tools that we use for our entire lives, but we should also be shocking our bodies by bringing in different things at different times to be able to... Uh, even if some it. of those things don't work, is that a thing? Like, you, uh, Well, so, no, so this is the biggest, this is one of the best points that you could have brought up. What mental fitness tool should I use? I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. Use any one you want. How do I know what one I want? The only way you know what one works for you is to go and try it. The only way. And so, you know, you and I could go try running uh, for a month. Yeah. And not running, you actually like running. Uh, we, could go, we could go to the gym for a month. Yeah. Um, and both of us could, you know, give it a good shot. Yeah. We do it for a month. We try it together, yeah. and at the, end of, right. at the end of the month, we're just like, yeah. nah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nah. But that's t- totally fine, right? But, but we tried it. Yeah. But one of the things that we might might happen, like, okay, here's an example. Yeah. Never been to a gym, don't like the gym, hate the gym. <laughs> Next to my desk at home, I have a kettlebell. Yeah. And so I got the kettlebell from my wife's gym usage. Yeah. And so whilst my, um, because I do a lot of um, uh, processor intensive work on my computer from editing podcasts or whatever, but, um, and so things will last for 60 seconds uh, in processing. And so I pick up the kettlebell and I do kettlebell swings for 60 seconds. Right. Um, It's it's physically good for you and you can do it, but also probably allows some biology of... You know, neuroplasticity and yep. and dislocation. But you will never get me doing kettlebells in a gym. Yeah, it's not it's not a thing. So what I've done is taken, you know, if we we're just going to make up our analogies, like if we'd gone to the gym and we'd done some weights and some kettlebells and some uh, aerobic activity and all of that, yeah. I would have gone fuck all of that. Yeah. Except I actually like those kettlebells. Yeah. And I could probably put that kettlebell just in my office. And and use it in between stuff. Yep. You're like, yes, I'm going to take that. Thinking more, you know, when you when you think about everything that's in that internal mental health toolbox, we've talked quite a bit about breathing, meditation, hot, cold. What else? What else have we got there? Well, the number one tool that I think helps the internal is self awareness. Yeah. Now, self awareness is an hour and a half podcast in its own, yep. um, and we ain't got that time. Yeah. But um, the one thing, here's another book for you. It's called Insight by Tasha Urich. Yep. It is a brilliant, simple book on self-awareness written by the woman who's done the biggest ever study at Harvard yep. on self-awareness. And one of the interesting things was the definition of self-awareness is the ability to understand yourself, the way you fit into the world, and the way people see you. Right, that's the basic definition. Mm. And she had three and a half thousand participants in her study. Ninety-six percent of them identified as self-aware due to that definition. Mm-hmm. So we look at it and we're like, "Yep, yeah, I get it. Yep, I'm self-aware." After her study, she declared thirteen percent of them to be actually self-aware. Yeah, and that is the cognitive dissonance between what we think we are and what we actually are. And is that why people when 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 people do these 360 review type things like people without reservation comment on their strengths and shortcomings people find those so confronting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well I mean there was a there was a study done <laughs> where you could either tell somebody um, 
uh, that uh, an uncomfortable truth about them yeah. uh, or have an electric, electric shock to you. Yeah. And the majority, by far and away, chose to have the electric shock. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> like, and so, and so, just like um, uh, mental fitness, uh, self awareness has um, both internal and external self awareness. Yeah. And so, the internal self awareness comes from things like meditation, yeah. uh, from internal reflection. Um, external self awareness comes from things like three sixty reviews, yeah. um, or what Tasha calls loving critics. Yeah. And so, loving critics are vitally important. They are. They have three things. Uh, number one is that a loving critic you must have a mutual respect for. Yeah. They must have your best interests at heart, mm-hmm. and they must be willing to tell you the truth. Yes. Because if they're just willing to tell you the truth, they're a critic. Yeah. And there's a bunch of examples, like mainly husband and wife examples, of uh, have best interests at heart, uh, have mutual respect, not willing to tell you the fucking truth. Yeah. Um, but that external- so, so, so a good relationship would have those attributes, of course, right? Of course. Yeah. No. So, and self awareness is my uh, is my starting point for my formula for moving up the continuum because in the most simple form, you cannot change what you are unaware of, mm. right? Or, or, or even something simple like like I do this. Uh, these are simple tools at even a lower level that the the VIA strengths inventory or yep. the Enneagram, which is sort of you know some sort of way of thinking about personalities. Yeah, like any insight into you know what you're good at versus what you're not. Uh, yeah, you know, like yeah. even that's interesting, right? So that's a starting point. Yeah, but then we even interpret those through our own lens. Yeah, right. That's a good. That point. we're not very self aware about. So, mm-hmm. so like. I look at that thing and I'm self-aware, right? So yeah. I, I, I'm, I look at that, I'm like, yep, 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 I'm self-aware. And so I then uh, went on Tasha's website. She has a self-awareness quiz. And so I filled in her quiz mm-hmm. to prove how self-aware I was. And then at the end, it says, please put in the email address of somebody that knows you really well. Yep. And so I'm like, okay, so I put my wife's email address in there. It yep. goes off to her. She gets asked the same questions about me. And then, and, they see the match. and then the algorithm, you know, works out, you know, see how close they are and all that sort of stuff. And I get a six-page report back telling me how fucking unaware I am. <laughs> and I'm like, no, this is wrong. So I go back on, I fill out the test again, I put my father's uh, email address in it because it somehow got messed up the first time. So I put my dad's one in there, goes off to him, he fills it out, comes back to me, the same fucking six-page report. <laughs> unaware. Unaware. You know how stupid I am? This is still wrong. Put in a friend's email address, same fucking report. Yeah. And the thing about self-awareness is it's it's not uh, you are self-aware or you're not self, self-aware. It's a continuum as well yep. in that you may be self-aware of some things yep. and then just completely oblivious for yep. other things. And the process is when you do something like meditation and you get quiet and you give your uh, thoughts space to be observed, then you sit there and you're like, oh, fuck. I am that. Yeah. And you have this one little piece of clarity and self-awareness on yeah. one particular issue. Yeah. And then you go work on that issue. You you go train that issue with whatever tools you want over a period of time. Maybe it's your 75 days that you're training for your half marathon. We do 75 days on that particular aspect of what I've now become aware of. Yeah. 
And then we're like, yeah, I think I've got that to a pretty good space. I'm reasonably fit with that aspect now. Go find more self-awareness. Yeah. Go sit back down and get quiet again. Yeah. Uh, Repeat the process. And so, but are there some things that you're not ever going to be good at and it doesn't really matter because of... Most things. Or, well, no, what I'm trying to get at is like, you and I are going to be deeply imperfect. Well, I don't know about you, but for me. No, we are. And, yeah. and, and many ways pretty much everything and you know some of that's okay it's all okay yeah but then you're going part of the self-awareness stuff is going well look this is the effect you're having so it's just like not knowing you're having that effect is the problem knowing knowing that that exists is a thing like like there's there's things that I'm not very good at I know I'm not very good at I know it has a poor effect like what uh, engaging in listening to people one on one, that's why I'm a hopeless psychologist, right? Because yeah. because like I just I just not very good at it, and yeah. I don't like doing it. I like to engage more more like we're doing now. Yeah, um, but but do, do, I, do I need to work on that? Yes. Yeah. And okay, so so I'm not very patient. Yeah. I don't suffer fools. Yeah. You know, like. Oh, well, I'm in that category as well. No, 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 exactly right. And so I'm like, that's just who I am. The practice of increasing my patience has probably been one of the most fundamental changes in my life. Yeah. Something that I didn't give a shit about, Mm. something that I, you know, was like, it's just who I am. Yeah. And they are an idiot after all, you know. Yeah. yeah. No, but, but that's just it. Like, the practice of understanding other people has allowed me to understand myself more. Yeah. And so, yeah, we don't have to go fully into, you know... You're, you're the most patient man in the world and no, you know, no, no one can be a more virtuous no, demonstration but move, of, of yeah, patience. But moving myself closer to normal <laughs> has really benefited me. Yeah, okay. And so in regards to, you know, do you have to be the best listener in the history of the world? Yeah. No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. But... But to actually listen occasionally would be much better than not at all. And and not for the other person. Yeah. For you. Yeah. Like you will find the benefits. Don't do any of these things for other people. Yeah. Like don't become more loving for your wife. Yeah. You know, become more loving for you and your wife gets the benefit, but you actually get the benefit mm. of being able to interact better with the world around you. Yeah. Is it So like a, often a, a bit of feedback that – um, my wife gives me, and she's very good at this. Is yep. that loving she, critic? Yep. Yeah. Well, she, she's very generous, and and, yep. and a part of her point is that the main beneficiary of the generosity is actually her. Yep. And she's right. Why do people volunteer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, not for the fucking cause. No. Well, well, I think if you are volunteering for the cause, that's all very noble. But yep. but it needs to. You need to be the beneficiary of correct. The correct. They'll say the benefit benefit of the cause, and be, yeah. that'll be part of it, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But um, they will be getting. Like that's why I always um, I always advocate asking for help. Yeah. In all aspects. Yeah. One, because you need the help, so therefore you should ask for it. Yeah. But two, not asking for help is depriving somebody of the joy of being able to help. Yeah. Because like when you help somebody, it feels amazing. Yeah. 
I helped so many people and people like, oh my God, you're so wonderful. I'm like, fuck you all. Yeah. I'm doing this for me. It feels wonderful. Yeah. Like, that, like I'm helping people for me. Yeah. And yay, it gets to help other people. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the, one of the highlights of my year is that um, my wife and I sort of run this three-week junior surf lifesaving program for kids sort of six to 14-year-olds. Cool. And the 14 to 18-year-olds, actually, we've trained them up as well and they become instructors. So they're learning as well. Um, everyone's like, oh, you volunteered for this. Oh, oh, seriously, like... <laughs> Favourite three weeks of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. it's a great three weeks, yeah. right? Like, yeah. so, like I'm having more fun than anyone, yeah. frankly. No, exactly. Um, a pig in mud. And yeah, so, and so, it's altruistic, it's great. These kids all get something. Yeah, the kids get something out of win, it. win-win for everybody. So, so that's great, but, yep. but frankly, it shouldn't be not noticed that the person having the best fun... <laughs> You know, going surfing yeah, with it's these the 55 kids. 55-year-old guy <laughs> running it. Just going surfing the whole time, you know? Like, it's yeah. just good, you know, great fun. Uh, so... No, yeah. uh, that's that's it's exactly right. Hmm. Jimmy, how are people going to find you? Um, where, where are they going to look? Uh, the simplest thing is to Google Jimmy Hunt. Uh, Jimmy, like Jimmy Hendrix, J-I-M-I, Hunt. Like yeah, and there's jimmyhunt.com. Dot com, and I mean everything. Everything's on my dot com, and you can you can listen to my podcast. You can see my socials. You can sign up to my free basic reset program. Uh, you can buy my books. You can. Uh, and I've been listening to your podcast. Which the 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 how we find your podcast? Where, where, where uh, you we, find podcast on all. And what's the name of the platform? What's the name of the It's podcast? called Inside Out, but uh, with Jimmy Hunt. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a little different. I talk about mental fitness. Then my wife and I talk about relationships yep. because relationships are a massive part of mental fitness. And then every third episode, I talk to smart people like you, uh, experts on Okay, so topics. you sort of go that three-week cadence yep. of, yep. of... One, of, one, one, yeah, one, of, one, one. On, on, yep. so inside out, find that wherever you find your podcast. Exactly. All right. Thanks, Perfect. Jim. Thanks, Grant. You've been listening to Preventionist Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, with me, Professor Grant Schofield. At Precure... We're developing a way to help medicine help change the world. We're filling that gap. We're helping train health coaches and mental health coaches. We're bringing short but effective behavior change programs over 29 days to you to help you learn for yourself and help others as well be healthier. We're trying to create a community of like-minded people, people like you who want to use the latest science and practice to change lives for the better. Join us at precure.com. Get involved in our communities. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Precure.com. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight